Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hi, this is Paul McGann and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the vengeful task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yeah, that wasn't very inspired. Not only is that one of the worst ones I've come up with, there's a future story where I'll have to use it again. (sighs) My name is Tony Witt and today we have a sometimes vengeful three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time around, it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have a fan who never acts on his thoughts of vengeance as much as I do, the tantalizing Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hey, hey. If you like what you're hearing, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, though this may no longer be true very soon, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them on an asteroid in Jupiter's orbit. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Maybe it's just as wild the spiel is going away because it's just getting sillier and sillier. And as <laughs> usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Deep breath. 
Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And speaking of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, run by our friend Larry Van Mersbergen, I appeared on a panel discussion for his program just a few days ago. So after you listen to this, you should go and listen to that. It's a very good discussion about collecting Target books. But you'll probably hear all the things you've heard me say about Target books already on this show. But listen to it anyway. Seriously. (laughs) We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the final story of the first season of the Tom Baker era with Terrence Stick's novelization of Revenge of the Cybermen. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Revenge of the Cybermen, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Jerry Davis that aired from 4 1975 to 5-10-75, published by Target Books in May 1976. As of this recording in October of 2020, this title is currently out of print, 128 pages. You'll also notice something. I didn't say that it is available as an unabridged audiobook because it's one of those rare few that isn't, at hmm. least not as of this recording. And that's probably not surprising. Yeah. You wouldn't expect a story like this to have anything distinctive about it, but it does. And boy, howdy, does it ever. It's the first Cybermen story since 1968's The Invasion, and one of only two appearances of the Cybermen in the 1970s, so that brief shot in Carnival of Monsters really shouldn't count. It's the first story to introduce the Cybermen's frankly bizarre vulnerability to gold, which features in many of the stories in the classic series after this, though the new series thankfully avoids that madness. (laughs) It's the first story to ever be released on home video in 1983, albeit in an edited omnibus format. It's the first story to designate a cyber leader by his black-colored head thingies, whatever those are called. Jugs. Jugs, there we go. Handles. Jug handles, whatever they are. It's the first story to use those in the black model for cyber leaders. It's the story that was airing when William Hartnell died. Mm, Not that there's a causal relation between those two things at all. (laughs) It's the last story scored by Carrie Blyton, who previously did The Silurians, which wasn't great. Death to the Daleks, which still wasn't all that great. Though his score is better here, though it's still not fantastic. And it's the last Cyberman story that Jerry Davis will ever write. That last one is a bit of a misnomer, of course, because much like all of the other stories this season other than Robot, it was heavily rewritten by Robert Holmes. Also, like almost all the other stories this season, it had trouble getting to the screen. Barry Letts had commissioned this one, and Davis, having not written for the show since the 60s, made the strange choice of giving the episodes individual titles, though he'd written for the show after that practice had been abandoned, so no idea why. (laughs) He also wrote The Doctor more like Patrick Troughton, because he had no idea how Baker would play it. The original script had the beacon as a space casino. I'm not kidding about this. And the Cybermen are still trying to destroy an asteroid full of gold, though it's mined by humans seemingly to keep the casino supplied with gold, I think. The plot described online and in all the sources that I've read it in 
it really doesn't make any more sense than the eventual plot does. Holmes changed the title from Return of the Cybermen to The Nonsensical Revenge of the Cybermen, as well as making the Cybermen more emotional, which Davis was not very happy about, ironically. He also gave Sarah more to do, changed the human miners to the alien Vogans, and got rid of the casino angle entirely, though not, unfortunately, the gold thing. Then, <laughs> the location <laughs> shoot went sideways. As the team were shooting in Wookie Hole, which is a famous cavern system said to be haunted by a witch from the Dark Ages, now said to be petrified as one of the cavern formations, the crew was told not to do anything to that formation, so naturally they decided to dress it in a hat and broom and take pictures with it. And then the director's wife took home some arrowheads from the caves. The resulting curse allegedly led to several events, including the director running into what he later thought was a ghost, the boats for, used for the Vogan skimmers constantly breaking down, an electrician had a ladder break under him and ended up breaking his leg, and Liz Sladen almost drowned when her boat went haywire, among other things. I could be disrespectful and say that's also why the story is awful, because of the curse, but it was awful <laughs> before that. <laughs> Two more things. One, this story was only released to video because the story that won the fan poll for the first video release, Tomb of the Cybermen, had not been discovered yet, though fans would get to experience that particular pleasure just ten years later, and God, was it ever worth the wait. And this was not meant to be the last story of the season. The story that finishes out this story arc, Terror of the Zygons, was filmed as part of this recording block and is technically the end of the Dr. Sarah Harry story arc, and that's how we're going to treat it. But the BBC was worried about the ratings that ITV might be getting in the fall for a new show called Space 1999. So they pushed Terror of the Zygons to the beginning of the next season. Hence, Tom Baker's first season comes to an end, not with the biggest bang in history, but with a despairing fart. <laughs> oh, you were just waiting for that, weren't you? Yeah, <laughs> I really was. I, I was sitting on that one for a while. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I know. So a piece of fun trivia about the unmade script is that Big Finish have just recorded it as part of their Missing Adventures range. It hasn't been released yet, and I forget the name of the actor playing Harry, but it's a sound-alike artist, but they got Sadie Miller, um, Liz Sladen's daughter, to reprise the role of Sarah Jane Smith. And I heard a clip of it, and she sounds really good, and I think it's going to be released early next year. Oh, good. I have nice. pre-purchased it, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So that'll be very interesting to compare that with... With what we eventually got. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, let's hope, let's hope it was better, because, as we know, it may not have been. All right, we need a dramatic reading of the back cover, and I haven't done one of these in a while, so I'm going to go ahead and volunteer myself for it. Right. There's no reason why y'all should suffer any more than I do. Now, just imagine behind this playing Carrie Blyton's just fabulous score for this particular story. A mysterious plague strikes Space Beacon Nerva, killing its victims within minutes. When Doctor Who lands, only four humans remain alive. One of these seems to be in league with the nearby planet of gold, Voga. Or is he, in fact, working for the dreaded Cybermen? 
who are now determined to destroy their old enemies, the Vogans. The Doctor, Sarah, and Harry find themselves trapped in the midst of a terrifying struggle to death. Struggle to death? Between the ruthless, power-hungry Cybermen and the determined, desperate Vogans. Well, half true. <laughs> <sighs> Goodness. My God. Okay, Dalton, <laughs> what was your first impression of this? Uh, looking at the cover, seeing Tom Baker's head floating in this uh, plume of gold dust smoke <laughs> I, whatever um and then the cyberman and what i assumed was a vogan i don't know i i didn't quite know how to take it i was kind of excited to see the cyberman come back though as uh, you've already said the story is kind of a letdown um <laughs> so uh I, initially excited for it and then as i started reading it, it was just like okay yeah this is this is not a grand return or much of a revenge of the cybermen at all um so yeah so you felt it was a letdown even without my little clues that maybe just maybe it may not be the best thing ever yeah it never really felt and i said this about the last story it never really felt like there was much of a threat it didn't, you know, even though the Cybermen are supposed to be really unstoppable and, and fearsome, it never felt like they really had much of an upper hand. Mm-hmm. It always felt like there was going to be something that would get to them, even the stupid gold. Their, their, their weakness to the gold, which, yeah, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Is there, is there just some metal that, that we don't know about that, that reacts to gold? I, I don't know. Yeah, it was just kind of a letdown. Okay, all right. And Trey, what was your first impression? This is one of the very first ones that I read as a kid, because it was one of the Pinnacle releases. Mm -hmm. And it's one that I read well before I saw it on TV. I actually have a pretty high regard for this as a novelization, if not a story, because in a reversal of... My issue with Genesis of the Daleks last time, which I thought is a lot of fun on TV, but the novelization makes its flaws more apparent. Mm-hmm. I think the reverse happens with this novelization because it's it's very flawed on TV, but a lot of the weaknesses are like the bizarre choices of the cyber leader strutting around or the design of the Vogans. And I do like the cave filming on the original very much, and I like the interplay between the three regulars a lot. But I, th- I think the novelization makes it a better story, a creepier story. I'm not going to say that it's my favorite story. I don't think as a story it's that great. But as an adaptation, I, I think it's pretty good. This is what I like to see from Terrence Dix. Okay. Yeah, it's not exactly a script page any more than the last one was. But at least here, it kind of feels like there's a little bit of improvement. That being said, that's a bit like polishing a turd because the turd remains. A gold turd. <laughs> a gold turd, in fact, yes. Where do we start with this? Where do we start with this? <laughs> well, there, there are a couple things. For one thing, we do know that, again, Dix was working from the shooting script because there are a couple of changes between the script and filming that are not in this version, which is perfectly fine because some of them are not all that great. We do get, still get that weird line about them having been gone for weeks that Sarah has. It's like, 
are you sure it's weeks? I mean, it's weeks for the viewer, true. But for mm-hmm. the characters, it could only have been maybe two, three days tops. There's a missing adventure that's slotted in there. Yeah, the missing adventures have tried to deal with that, but... Yeah. Yeah, but it is a weird little thing. But uh, I'm I'm going to open it up to you guys because my notes go back and forth between just shouting at the stupidity of the script <laughs> and noting the differences. So... <laughs> So it must be Thursday, yes. I think the story is a fine piece of escapism. I think maybe in the age of COVID, the opening scenes where there's this play going around and they're worried about contamination and breaking quarantine, that had a little bit of extra resonance for me. I like the fact that the Cybermats are back. And Terrence Sticks, one of the things I noticed that he does in this is he does a lot with the minor characters with like the limited omniscient perspective. Mm-hmm. Just here and there, that makes the characters, at least the human characters, more believable. My my issue with Genesis was I felt nothing for the Collets. I didn't. I wasn't invested. But Stevenson, or is it Lester? You care about them. You care about the crew, people in their plight. Even like the bit with Warner at the beginning, and he has to lie about, you know, I know everything's okay because you know their family members dead. I I like those little character moments, and I think. There's a creepiness in the atmosphere and some interplay there that works for the novelization's favor. Yeah, it does, kind (sighs) of. Maybe I'm not seeing it. Dalton, what do you think? I mean, you implied that you didn't much care for the story. What were the things about the story you didn't care much for? One of the first things that got me, the fact that they don't have the TARDIS. Okay, they come back because of this time bracelet thing that Time Lords have given the Doctor, and they explain that they have traveled too far into the past (laughs) because of something that happened with the bracelet. Okay, so the TARDIS is going to come back to this time and place. How? (laughs) How does it know where to come back to? And if the beacon is moving, how does it, how does it, locate them if it's if it's in a different location also in the previous story the beacon was supposedly by earth right because Mm -hmm. (laughs) the colonists on the ark now it's around jupiter Mm -hmm. and the tardis is going to autopilot back thousands of years and thousands of millions of miles (laughs) <laughs> so that that kind of threw me off, which whatever I, we've we kind of know that the doctor and the TARDIS are tied. They're linked. I think I've read a fan theory somewhere that this is, is actually a Time Lord mission, but they didn't want to tell the doctor. So they just sent him back a little bit further. <laughs> and that's typical. I, I mean, yeah. and that's actually, as, and this is where I was talking to someone in my family, but like recon- this rationalizing continuity errors for that one, it pretty much works pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that would make sense. The, the, the Time Lords have already sent the doctor on a mission. Why not one more <laughs> before we get you? Uh, yeah, he's, he's in the vicinity, so we might as well have him take care of this thing. Right, he's in the same solar system. That's not too far out of the way. Yeah, as long as you're going to the cleaners, can you pick me up some ciggies on the way back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got that no, that, yeah I think that's yeah, I think that's it. 
Well, and it also could be, I mean, the new series makes noises about the TARDIS taking the Doctor where he needs to be, not where he wants to be, but this is the time ring we're talking about, so it may yeah. just be that all of Gallifreyan technology is wonky, and that might actually be borne out by the next time we see the Time Lords come to think of it, but uh, I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. Yeah, it could just be they're not very good at what they do. Yeah. So that that just kind of right off the bat had me like scratching my head of like, well, what? Why? Okay. <laughs> also, the the fact that the doctor early on sees the cybermat, recognizes that it is a cybermat and doesn't make anything of it. Yes. Huh. That's a good point. I've never really thought about that. His bells don't start ringing and being like, "Hey, something's going on." Really. Mhm. Um, Chapter two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a whole lot later that, that some, you know, something happens, but it's still like, if you see a Cybermat, you immediately should have reacted to that. Mm -hmm. So that, that was kind of a second thing early on that had me just like, uh, what? That's, that's not right. Well, if we're going by the way they appear on screen, he could be forgiven because they don't look like traditional Cybermats at all. In fact, until it's called that on screen, you don't realize that's what they are <laughs> because it's like it's more like a, a silver snake. It doesn't have eyes or anything like that. And it looks pretty awful on screen, to so, be honest. So that would make sense then. If it, if it does have a different appearance than he's used to, then, of course, he's not going to immediately correlate. And yet he does recognize it here. You're right. Yeah. It seems a bit odd. <laughs> In fact, on screen, if I'm remembering this correctly, I just rewatched it the other day while creating papers. Um, it's when he hears the name of the planetoid Voga that mm -hmm. he thinks, oh, yeah, it's the planet of gold, so he must be dealing with Cybermen. It's not so much the Cybermat that clues him into it, but here you're right. It's the Cybermat that clues him into it, but he kind of keeps that to himself for a bit. Mm -hmm. It's actually very Seventh Doctor, isn't it, to... <laughs> oh yeah it's like yeah circles within circles and plans within plans yeah and yet that's not what's going on at all it just seems to be a um if not a plot hole then at least a plot dip as in it makes the doctor look like a dip for not saying something earlier <laughs> about it well my issue with the story is it just takes so fucking long for the cybermen to get there and oh, that's man. a problem with a lot of cybermen stories that's that's what i didn't like about the invasion Sometimes they delay the Cybermen for an episode because they want there to be a reveal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the Cybermen stories are like that. So you're dealing with these secondary characters. And my issue with the story is the Vogans. They, they have these factions, and we don't really know why the factions are fighting. And again, it's, it's the same issue. And this actually ties in with Russell T. Davis's idea that viewers don't care about characters from Planet, Gonk, or whatever. <laughs> But I think that's wrong because like, I think there's other stories where I have cared about the secondary characters, the supporting cast, even if they're not from Earth. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know what the riff is between Voris and Tyrum, and the Vogans are alien for the sake of alien. And this is where I wonder if the original script would have been better, if they've had human miners and characters, if that would have been something that would have been more approachable for us as viewers or readers and maybe get us to give a shit a little bit more. But you're trying to create a whole alien culture, and their culture doesn't make much sense. There's some interesting backstory about how they were wiped out by the Cybermen, and like maybe they were 
Earth allies or is this the one where they reference the glitter gun? Yeah, the glitter oh, gun. Oh, yeah, which, mm-hmm. but not which, in the book. Oh, my gosh. That, yeah, in the television story, there's a weapon reference called the glitter gun, and that sounds like something that you would find at Gay Pride. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's where the flaw is with the story. Because you, when the first quarter of the book, when it's really about these trapped humans trying to survive a plague, I feel much more worried about them and then i don't care about these fucking factions you know fighting each other if i knew really what they were fighting about or what the history was or a sense of injustice in the society maybe i would be more moved but it just seems like petty politics and i don't get it right yeah and my biggest issue apart from the gold and we need to get to that we really do is we have seen this exact base under siege story before. In fact, we've seen it twice. We've seen the moon base, and we've seen the wheel in space. It's essentially the same story, just with some of the particulars changed. We got uh, an infection in the moon base. We had, well, kind of a human agent in wheel in space. And it's like, okay, this again... Even the Cybermen themselves seem like crapped out versions of themselves. And they're treated that way on screen. They're not treated as a menace at all. The Doctor is extremely derisive of them. And I think, strangely enough, Dix kind of gets pulls back from that a bit. He doesn't have the Doctor say, and, and they invented the glitter gun, and that was the end of Cybermen, except as gold-plated souvenirs that people use as hat stands. That line I don't remember being in the book. You've no home planet, no influence, nothing. You're just a pathetic bunch of tin soldiers skulking about the galaxy in an ancient spaceship. You speak unwisely. We are destined to be rulers of all the cosmos. No, I don't think so somehow. You tried that once and you were nearly wiped out. Because of Voga and its gold. If humans had not had the resources of Voga, the cyber war would have ended in glorious triumph. It was a glorious triumph for human ingenuity. They discovered your weakness and invented the glitter gun. And that was the end of Cybermen, except as gold-plated souvenirs that people use as hat stands. <laughs> but them being a bunch of tin soldiers skulking around the galaxy in an ancient spaceship, that's still in there. And I, I, I don't know if Jerry Davis is trying for some form of... Uh, originally was trying for some form of cyber history, especially since we get that first chapter, that first bit, I guess you'd call it a prologue, but it's not Terrence Dix, it's Jerry Davis. And we've seen it before. It was in the beginning of Doctor Who and the Cybermen, which was the the last book that Jerry Davis wrote. And we saw another version of it in uh, Tomb of the Cybermen as well. Maybe he's trying to do that, I don't know, but... If you show a species or a race at the end or the decline of their importance, you're showing them at their end, essentially, and they're not nearly as dangerous or deadly. I think that was the lack of menace that you were picking up on Dalton. The stakes aren't particularly high. There's nothing in here about no threats of cyber conversion, and and that's an issue in their next appearance, which is a more popular story, but... These are the two classic era of cyber, and I'd say pretty much all of the new series does a really good job of never forgetting that the Cybermen were once humans. Yeah. And with the remaining Cybermen stories, the final two, one more than the other, reminds us of that. But this revenge, these could be any alien. They don't have to be Cybermen. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another one of the problems. And then it does introduce this gold thing. And yeah, yeah. the gold thing. God damn it all. Uh, the gold thing. Let's just tackle that head on, shall we? Because <laughs> of all of the bits of Doctor Who lore that have ever been introduced, the Cybermen's allergy to gold makes no fucking sense. Not a bit of sense. Why on earth? We're told that it clogs up their chest units, they suffocate, but Cybermen don't breathe to begin with. So why on earth would it clog their chest units so that they can't breathe? Because they Wasn't don't it corroding breathe. their chest units? Yes, but why would But then what do the chest happen? units do? Well, I think... I think maybe the question is not the gold, but the chest unit. Well, yeah, but if that's the case, if you know that you're working with a material that corrodes easily with something as plentiful as gold, there was a recent article saying there's more gold in the universe than just about any other material. Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Witt from the future here. It seems that I misspoke a little bit there. I'm referring to a live science article that came out about a month ago from this podcast that says that there's too much gold in the universe and no one knows where it came from. Not that there's more gold than anything else. There's just a heck of a lot of it out there. Anyway, back to the show. We can't figure out why that is, and I I figure it's, oh, it's to make sure that we're safe from all the damn Cybermen. (laughs) But if you know that you're built with a material that corrodes because of something as ubiquitous as gold... You change the material. I, I just don't... Uh. And this is one of the things, and this is um, me disagreeing with you a little bit, Trey, on Dick's uh, improving the story. He actually adds a few things that are even worse by saying that the Cybermat gets melted by the gold dust. <laughs> melted? The fuck are they made of? One gets melted, and then they use another one. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, they, it, obvi- well, that's the other thing. It's inconsistent. Because even one of the Cybermen says, oh, gold interferes with our function. It's like, okay, uh, it melts Cybermat, sure. But now we're going to inject gold dust into a Cybermat so it can be injected into Cyberman without damaging that Cybermat. The fuck? What? what? Whoa, what? Yeah. I'm sorry, it's just, this is literally decades of pent-up frustration at this plot point. Clearly. And yes, I, I have always hated that every single time I've seen Cybermen stories. In fact, one of the joys of my adult life was when I first saw Tomb of the Cybermen and there wasn't a gold allergy. And I was like, oh my heavens, this changes everything, that they're not vulnerable to gold in those early stories. And yet suddenly, as of 1975... Fucking gold takes them Which out. Which is one so. of one, my reasons why in the classic series, Attack of All Things is probably my favorite Cybermen story of the classics. Mm. And there is no gold in there, and the Cybermen are actually fucking threatening and dangerous in that one. So mm-hmm. Yes, but then it has its own problems. <laughs> well, we'll yeah, and I think course. maybe it's because I first encountered the story, and this was my first Cybermen story in any form. But reading this as a kid, I probably didn't wasn't thinking as logically, and so I just kind of accepted it. So I, I can see that all of your objections about the gold, I mean, it is a ridiculous plot point, but it just doesn't seem to bother me. It's kind of like, why are Daleks, why don't they build better eyepieces so that when their visions are impaired? I mean, I think that's the sort of thing 
if I worry about it too much, then the whole show just falls apart for me. And so I, I just don't let myself. Yeah. It's part of that suspension it. of belief that, sure, why not? They're allergic to gold. <laughs> well, here I really do have to suspend my disbelief because it's it's just crazy. I mean, I probably would accept it if it were maybe even the slightest bit more consistent or if there were a better rationale for it, but the rationales that they give for it, which that whole thing about them uh, clogging their chest units so they can't breathe, it's not just in this story. It's used in a later story, which should know better. They'll use it in two, two more stories. Oh, two more stories, yeah, come to think of it. And it's like, what? Okay, you couldn't come up with something better. Why couldn't we just keep them affected by radiation? Because that makes sense. Radiation is everywhere. But it kind of starts with the whole cocktail poly in the moon base, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, come to think of it, because we have the acetone. So apparently the Cybermen are made of nail polish. If they can be destroyed by that, then some gold leaf nail polish is going to do them in for good. And I don't remember if this is a line in the novelization. I'm sorry I should know this. I should have noted it. But does he actually say in the novelization we have enough parts in our ship to build a cyber army. That doesn't really strike. I, it's not Mm-mm. standing out to me, but yeah. it could very well be. There was there was mention of there being places with parts, but mm-hmm. I don't remember it being specifically their ship. We have enough parts in our ship to build an entirely new cyber army. The Pep Boys, Manny, Moe, and Jack. When I need a part, I know Pep Boys has it. New and rebuilt parts, tools, you name it, they've got it. At prices, nothing short of amazing. Okay, so that sticks improving on something that's in the original script. Because in the original script, the cyber leader says we have enough parts in our ship to build an entire cyber army. It's like, parts? What? Okay, you're fully mechanical now? Because you seem much more emotional than you ever did before. Now, if they have tombs everywhere, like they do on Talos, that makes sense to me. But if that's the case, why are they all frozen in the tombs? Why aren't they just going around and waking everybody up so that they can attack again? Are they that afraid of gold? Good God. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Okay, rant over. There are other things to rant about in the story, but that's the one I wanted to get off my chest. Something I really like, I thought was really sweet. There was a great line in there about the Dr. Carrot picked up the Cybermat like a poodle. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't hate a book that has a line like that. I I really, you know, it's, that just made me grin. And there was, there were just a few moments like that. I I liked, I liked, I guess I liked that line. (laughs) Well, I do appreciate Dick's referring to the sonic screwdriver as uh, one of the crew members says that it looks like it's been opened by a sonic vibrator. It's like, honey, what other kind is there? Mm. Does the sonic vibrator go with the glitter gun? <laughs> well, it must do. Oh, God, yeah. Well, we've, we've had that before, haven't we? We've talked about the Cybermen being a stand-in for gay men. They kind of are in this story because they're definitely arch on screen. And, oh, and this is something Dalton won't know about. They have the cyber equivalent of flared trousers, bell bottoms. What? Yes. The cyber <laughs> pants have flared bottoms, bell oh bottoms. Oh my God. Yeah. And the cyber leader literally struts around with his hands on his hips. He does <laughs> indeed. Oh my it's God. Fabulous. You can it tell really by the way is. he uses his walk. He's a woman's man. No time to talk. <laughs> 
You're not wrong. (laughs) Except he won't be wearing any gold chains. No. No. (laughs) That's why he's angry and wants revenge. You know, that's. (laughs) He's he's just he's just flaunting that chest unit instead of chest. It's like he's in the disco era and he can't wear gold chains. You know, fuck that. I'd be pissed too. One of the funniest lines I ever heard that was very specific to the 70s is that the, the third doctor, the John Pertwee doctor, would be the doctor who would hang around in bars smelling of high karate and asking, what's your sign? <laughs> it's absolutely true. Well, since we're going down that route, we have to talk about the final chapter title then, don't we? Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah. The biggest bang in history. Yes. Oh. Which does <laughs> indeed... Which does indeed occur on screen. And apparently they had lots of fun with that one during uh, rehearsal and filming. How could you not? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just... (laughs) And yet it's not the biggest bang in history, is it? It's just a... It's a little fut, is what it is. Yeah. Well, and again, that's the thing. You know, it's all talk. They promise the biggest bang, and those are always the most disappointing, aren't they? You know, Mm -hmm. it's... And again, low stakes, because who cares? Who cares if Voga gets destroyed? People thought it was destroyed already. Who cares if the beacon is destroyed? They can just build another one. And we never get a sense that the entire Vogan race is going to be wiped out by this, because as far as the rest of the universe knows, they have been. And as for the people who are on the beacon, if they die, Earth Central is going to think, oh, they died of the plague. There are no stakes here. None. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous. Like the the only stake is that if the beacon gets destroyed, where's the TARDIS gonna come? There, there is that. But exactly. but even with earlier, it's like, uh, well, it's just gonna follow the Doctor anyway, so I guess it would just appear on Voga. Yes, or as it's <laughs> called at one point in the um, the the version that I had, Yoga. Yoga. Yoga is yes. still there. Yoga. Yes, in these difficult times when we can count on nothing else, Yoga is indeed still there. Although I guess um, it could also materialize in the vacuum of space at the correct coordinates. So. Yeah, <laughs> but by then, who would care? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, my dear God. What else about this story do we want to talk about? The rocket. Ah. My Sky Striker. My <laughs> sky <story>. Striker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's a Bond that, film. That's a gay porn or, or yes. a gay porn star name or something. Yes, inter- yeah, yes. Yes. it's a gay Bond oh. film. Yes, Sky Striker. Oh my gosh, I can just imagine Shirley Bassey going Sky Striker. <laughs> yes. Oh god, it's my totally, testosterone. Oh, my <laughs> testosterone levels just dropped precipitously. <laughs> oh, good God, yeah. Well, I mean, you've got the Goldfinger connection there, don't you? Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, come to think of it. Oh, God. Well, and Volga just makes me think of Vogue, so. Oh, That's been stuck in my head. <laughs> or vegans, which I don't come on, about either. Come on, Volga. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I... I yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah. The Please rocket, get us out uh, of this. We'll just, uh, <laughs> do we ever get an explanation of why no. they're, they're spending 
they've been working on it for years. It just so happens that uh, they're finishing it when they just when they need to use it. I think that's the rift, isn't it? What political rift there is, the fight or flight sort of debate. Yeah. Tyram wants them to stay hidden. He wants his people to stay safe, whereas Voris is, and Tyram is also significantly older. And mm-hmm. by the way, the actor who played Tyram, Kevin Stoney, was also in Invasion. So there's that connection. But Voris seems to be one of these young hotheads who wants something greater for Voga, even though it's not all that great. And has, all right, let's, let's unpack what this plot actually is. Voris somehow put an ad out on Craigslist <laughs> for some morally corrupt planetologist, uh-huh. Kelman, to contact him so that they could come up with this elaborate scheme whereby the same Kelman would go on Craigslist and say, hey, Cyberman, do you need any help with this? And lure them to the beacon, killing all the people on the beacon ahead of time for no apparent reason. And then once the Cybermen are on the beacon, Boris is going to shoot his rocket at the beacon and kill the Cybermen. But only the Cybermen that are on that ship. Yeah. The fuck? Well, so now that you bring up Kalman and we made this James Bond reference, I mean, there, there, it seems like there's a version of the story where Kalman is this really interesting espionage double agent. Mm-hmm. Like his gadgets, like the James Bond hairbrush, and that's really <laughs> yes. a radio, and and again, that's that's where it's like the script doesn't know what it wants to be. Is that it starts off like a plague story, and then that disappears, and then like you've kind of got this espionage double agent story, and that just kind of goes nowhere. And then the the mission to, br- to put the cobalt bombs down there, that it's it can't, it's like it can never decide what sort of story it wants to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the whole point of the Cybermen being there is because Kelman has sent them this message saying, hey, I found Voga, I found Voga, come and destroy it. And you think, well, why? Why would they take the risk? Because it's actually quite risky for them Mm -hmm. to go down there, and they go down. (laughs) That came out wrong. But they do go to Voga. They do transmit to Voga at one point uh, so they can kill off a bunch of Vogans, and you're like... Yeah, but um, why? What are they trying to do? There's supposed to be a second campaign or something, but is there only this one ship of Cybermen at all? Yeah, it... Too many questions. Yeah, there are. There are way too many questions, such as, where do you get jobs like that? Because (laughs) I would love to have some sort of double agent thingy where I end up getting a bunch of gold or control the earth or something or whatever it is that Kalman wanted. Even that's not clear. Ugh. Oh, Dalton, speaking of James Bond, <laughs> we again get the doctor threatening a villain with death unless he gives him information. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this time it's not quite as pressing <laughs> as when the doctor threatens Davros's life. But it's still happening. He's still using the Cybermat. I disagree. To... Okay. Because he's already established he knows how to cure it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, Kelman doesn't know that, but no, he I don't think it's I don't think it's as ethically dubious at all because it's even if he were to follow through, he can cure Kelman. 
just with sending him down the trans map. However, and that's something that the audience may forget in that moment, and there's it's just enough, and for that matter, Dix doesn't necessarily... Dix could have sold that a bit more because he's perfectly fine with putting us in the doctor's head occasionally. And he could have put us in the doctor's head at that point and said the doctor, of course, knew that there was no threat, that even if he had to use the Cybermen on Kalman, he could send him down or, you know, whatever. He doesn't do that. And it still comes across as even in the watered-down version we get in the book, it still comes across as threatening and it's still kind of this odd moment. The Tom Baker era is full of those odd moments until, of course, he goes completely insane and we lose them all. But yeah, it's like, okay. Not that I necessarily have a problem with that moment myself, but it is kind of in keeping with James Bond because as soon as as Dalton said that, I remembered that I had put that in my notes and sure enough, there it was and it was attached to that, that scene. Hey, at least he's not quipping like James Bond yet. <laughs> But that's coming. He is chapping, though. Yes. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Maybe it's Robert Holmes. Trey, what do you think? Because Robert Holmes had his fingers in the pie that was Genesis of the Daleks to a degree. Well, he's script editor during this point. Well, so. yeah, of course. And he script edited this, too. But then looking ahead, and I'm not going to name the story because I don't want to ruin anything for Dalton, but looking ahead to that other questionable time that the doctor does something or says something and it happens to be in the same story it's written by robert holmes well yeah and and again if it's the point you're thinking to i think the doctor's actions probably wouldn't have upset fans if it were not for the quip yes yeah because you know the doctor is fighting for his life at that point and he's already been wounded but it's the very james bondy after word mm-hmm. comment yeah exactly but yeah robert holmes has that if you think about it, like the his three seasons the era that were coming in is one of the most violent of the classic series it did get the most criticism you get things like seeds of doom where he's cracking heads and you, even tom baker had objections to the next companion because of the its violent tendencies mm-hmm. and so there's I, I think I think you're right. This may be very much Robert Holmes, who, I, and again, listeners, this is not me being an anti-cop, but Robert Holmes was a policeman. Mm-hmm. And policemen, as part of their job, they have to be comfortable with justified violence. Mm-hmm. Especially in the 70s. Well, yeah, and we're having all sorts of debates about you know how far you take it, but I think most of us would agree that there are times where we disagree is when are those times and how much force should be used. But... The, the use of violence for a moral ends is something that a cop would be very at peace with, mm. in my opinion. Possibly. And so if that's Holmes's background, I could see him, that just him being part of his reality or the way, the lens in which he sees the world and it not being much of an issue. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that could very well be it, I think. Because it's definitely there. But again, that's one of the things that Dix does improve with this story, even though there's... (laughs) You can only do so much. It's just... What else do we want to talk about? I like the interplay between the characters, the three leads. I don't think it's as much fun as their televised performances, where 
I, I like that Sarah and Harry get so much time together and they can squabble and bicker and mm-hmm. they're kind of like a brother and sister. <laughs> and, you know, she's like, shut up about the gold, you know? And, and he's like, um, I see you're in a mess. Are you aware of that? You know, when they're heading towards the biggest bang, and she's like, yes, we know. And so I, I like, I, I do like that interplay. Yeah. Except there's a lot less of it on the page. Right, right. There's actually much more of it on screen, especially when Harry goes all gaga over the fact that there's gold everywhere, which I'm kind of glad to get rid of, to be honest, because it does make Harry look like a doofus. It's kind of like in those old Looney Tunes or Disney cartoons where they see gold and they go insane by it or something. (laughs) Money bags, eyes, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, yes. There is a sequence where Harry does exactly that when they first get down to Gavoga. (laughs) And Dix very nicely gets rid of that and compresses that whole scene so that we don't even have it. You just, yeah, they just are on to the next thing. I think they get like captured as soon as they go down or something. There's another thing with Harry. Oh, yes. <laughs> Harry, destroyer of worlds, or at least Kelman's world, because he's the one who causes the rocks to fall. Yeah. <laughs> And almost kills the doctor, too, by undoing the uh, bomb. Yeah. Harry. Were you trying to undo this? Well, naturally. Did you make the rocks fall, Harry? Uh, Well, I suppose I must have done, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Harry Sullivan is an imbecile! There's something that always bothers me is... How abrupt the ending is. Of the book, you mean? Yeah, well, the book and the TV show. It's they escape the bang and then the TARDIS appears and they leave. And so what is the situation with Voga? What is this what's Stevenson gonna do? I mean uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well come to think of it, you're right. He's the only human survivor. Well, no, he and the commander are both. Oh wait, I keep getting no, these no, things he's, wrong. Yeah. Cause Lester sacrifices himself. Oh, that's right. Stevenson mm-hmm. is the only one who survives. That's right. And maybe that's a function of how much I think of the story that I really don't give a shit. <laughs> I honestly don't. I like it. And and this goes back to me watching it. I, I like the sort of cozy farewell sequence where like they thank the doctor or whatever and they wrap things up and it just seems to be I, I don't like how it and so I, I, I don't think there's enough closure in the story. Well, there's a bit more closure in this than there usually is, because at least here we have a reference to the next story. And you have to give them that at least, that we actually get a TARDIS scene, whereas we don't even get that on screen. All we get is Tom Baker going into the TARDIS prop and you can see the ticker tape that he's going to bring out from the Time Space Telegraph hanging inside for Tom Baker to find. And it's like, oh, God. Okay, so they're not even caring that much that they're trying to hide this stuff. So there's that. Oh, by the way, speaking of Dick's making references to other books, there is something I wanted to bring up because I think it's just hilarious. We do get another one of those, I call them comic asterisks, Mm -hmm. where you put an asterisk beside something that the character says, and they say, see, Spider-Man number 17, or whatever. And here we get two of them, one for Giant Robot and one for Genesis of the Daleks, available wherever fine books are sold. But then Dix says 
something about the scene of an earlier adventure, which I think is Dick speak for, I didn't write that one, so bugger that I one. thought the same thing. I totally <laughs> thought the same thing rereading this. Like, those are Ian Martyrs, so fuck him, you yeah. know? I'll sell my own books, but I'm not Consul- giving him yeah, any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not giving him any business. Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you get the one at the very end saying, find out what happens next in Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> yes, exactly, which happens to be a dick's. Um, I don't think he knew that at the time, though. Because Wait, no. Lock This Monster came out after these two, didn't it? Uh, I don't know. Oh, boy. I have to look that up. I I think it's it because, I mean, for one thing, it's called Lock Ness Monster. (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) mean, was the book published? No, but I think it was earlier because they were still renaming the titles. Oh, right. Tell you what, I can check real quick because I have bookmarked the list of Doctor Who novelizations from wikipedia who's begging me for money again there's no way i'm gonna give you any money you cree rat sacks yep lock dispenser was written before these two because revenge was written before genesis and they were released within a month of a uh, couple months of each other in 1976 but then why does it say see genesis of the daleks because he knew that that book was coming out that same year okay. it, it would have been because remember these books if i remember correctly these books were often released like two within a month. In fact, I'm looking at the dates right now and that's tracking with what I was thinking because if you look, Planet of the Spiders and Three Doctors both came out in November of 75. This one came out in May. Genesis came out in July. So there would have been a wait, yes, but Terrence Six may not have known that. He may have already have done the uh, manuscript though. Come to think of it, I just realized I'm looking at the hardback release dates. No, it's basically the same. Yeah, so I think that's exactly it. And I think that Dalton's right, that when he makes those references at the end, that's because he knows that he's already written Loch Ness Monster that exact same year, by the way. Oh my god. (laughs) You can tell that Dick's like to make money off of these. Of course he did, because he wasn't doing anything else at the time. (laughs) There was something I didn't mention last time. In fact, Trey mentioned one of the things I didn't mention last time, namely that Genesis of the Daleks and this one and the next one were all released as pinnacle books here in the United States. And uh, I'm trying to think. I know Mask of Andragora was, but I can't think of what the other pinnacle books were. Android Invasion. Right. Seeds of Doom, Towns yep. of Wang Chiang, Day of the Daleks, Dinosaur Invasion, Doomsday Weapon. Yeah, we've done those earlier ones. I didn't know about the ones coming up, but I had read an article in John Peel's magazine, Fantasy Empire, years back about the differences in the televised versions and the Target books. And it was very critical of those differences. And this was one of the ones that it took to task. It specifically took to task the passage in which they're describing Kelman. And the writer's idea of it was that Dix's changes somewhat narrow the range of the reader's imagination by calling to mind a more specific image than the more openly worded ones on screen. Do we feel like our imagination's being limited by Terrence Dix going for a very specific choice of words to describe certain things, or...? I think Dalton's the best one to answer that because we can't really separate it from what we've seen on TV. True. 
No, I mean, I am the type of person that I usually like to have some kind of visual reference for things a lot of times, but I don't usually ever feel that giving a detailed description limits my imagination because I'm going to depict something in my head completely different than you're going to depict it or Trey's going to depict it. No matter how specific it is, we're all going to come up with an individual kind of image for it. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't really feel like, yeah, getting a good description is really going to limit anything that my, my brain is going to do. Well, I know that that article called into question Kelman being described as, oh, I can't, I don't have the book in front of me right now or else I'd be able to look it up, but being described as a rat who crawled back into his hole as soon as the plague happened. And on screen, it's much more general. Yet a thing like that is still alive, and uh, Lester doesn't actually say anything quite that specific. So I think that's what the writer was getting at. Still, it does kind of call into question a problem that I have with Dix in some of these books, which is when he tries to improve on certain things, it doesn't really work. Some of the funnier lines, for instance, are gone. And he had exactly one new funny line that I enjoyed. (laughs) which is when the doctor is being given his bomb backpack. That makes it sound like I really love his backpack. That that backpack's the bomb. But no, it's his bomb backpack. And he says, oh, are we going camping? (laughs) And I love that line. That really is great, and it doesn't occur on screen. But the whole exchange about fragmentize is gone. I I need to explain this for Dalton. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) Yeah, because you haven't watched this one yet. You should watch it, though, because, oh, my God, it's uh, it's just, (laughs) it's an experience, an MSC3K experience, just so you know. (laughs) The cyber leader says, Our calculations indicate that two bombs placed in the central fissure of Boga will fragmentize the planet. Fragmentize? Oh, well, I suppose we can't expect decent English from a machine. And then he brings it up again later. He says, and then we'll be fragmentized, as you put it. And those exchanges are gone. Even the exchange of one of the Cybermen pushing the doctor towards the transmat, and he says, careful, I might explode. Stuff like that is gone. Those, those sound to me, Those, if these are shooting scripts, are these Tom Baker ad-libs? They may very well have been. Because that's what he's, you know, known for doing and adding these sorts of snarky and quippy witticisms and asides. And that, that seems very Tom Baker to me, those moments. I'm almost certain Fragmentize isn't, though. I, somewhere around here, I still have the script book for that season. And I need to dig it out, but I'm almost certain that was in the original script. Whereas you're right, a lot of it could be ad-libbed by Tom Baker because he never met a script he didn't want to rewrite. <laughs> right. And he usually had a point in thinking that, too. Hello, Tony from the future again. It turns out that Trey and I are both half right. According to my copy of Doctor Who, The Scripts, Tom Baker, 1974 to 1975. Great book, by the way. Still in print. I wish they did script books like that for whole seasons more than they did for just that one. According to that, the whole business of fragmentize, which is actually what it says in the script is indeed additional, though it's building on a later line where the Doctor actually does say fragmentize. So, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Anyway, back to the show. There are some good improvements. 
One of them being that Dix is very good at making it clear that what's left of Voga is not a planet, as depicted on screen, even though later on he does call it a planet. I don't know why. It also allows him to avoid getting an incorrect count of the moons around Jupiter, because on screen, the Doctor actually says something along the lines of, you mean there are now 13, which was a projection at the time, and now we know there are actually 79 of the damn things. So if the Doctor would have known, he wouldn't have said 13. What else? Anything else we want to say about this? There is the mention, Sarah caught a flash of movement in the corner of her eye, spun around, and reacted in true feminine style. She let out a loud, hearty scream. Oh my. Yeah, I can see Dave Davies uh, <laughs> saying something about that. And, if, and I, I trust if Allison were with us, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she'd have something to say about that too. I, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up, Dalton. In my notes, I say, "Oh, fuck off." Yeah. <laughs> Just what? Yeah. He also says that she has exceptionally good peripheral vision. My <laughs> ass, she does. There are plenty of times when something like that could have saved her some trouble, and she never had it before. <laughs> yeah, that just caught me off. It's like, no, why? <laughs> But we've talked in the past about Terrence Dix's proclivities. So. Yes, less <laughs> than woke views, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, God. Anything else that we want to say about it? Anything that leapt out at you? Any lines that you saw were particularly good? Anyone else? Just the poodle. Anyone else? The poodle. Reading, anyone else keep reading Shepra or Sherpa? Uh, yeah, I did a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, there's just no way to get around that, unfortunately. The doctor uh, calling Kelman a homicidal maniac. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I do love that, in fact. Oh, and <laughs> the Cybermen's radar is affected by the gold. Mm-hmm. The cyber radar is affected because of gold. So radar... The very laws of physics, as long as something has cyber in front of it, it's affected by gold. So God help you if you want to have cyber sex with your honey, because you better make sure they're not wearing gold chains, because it's going to affect it. <laughs> the oh. glitter gun. And the glitter Yeah, exactly. Speaking of the glitter gun. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's cute? I mean, this is also where we're getting to the point where, like, the Cybermen kind of become like Smurfs, where cyber com- becomes in front of everything. We'll take the cyber ship. We'll take the cyber. The cyber leader. The cyber this. The cyber that. You know, the cyber bombs. The cyber. And it's just like the Smurf mobile. The Smurf how. I mean, it's just cyber becomes like. <laughs> I don't oh, that's know. Just or cyber-y. like Batman and the prefix bat. You know, everything has bat in front of it. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Cyber repellent. Oh yeah. Oh god. Yeah. It it is kind of there, isn't it? <laughs> oh god. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. So it's probably just as well that this was Jerry Davis's last <laughs> cyber story, even though what's coming yeah, yeah we'll we'll get there. <laughs> We will disagree on that, probably. Yes, we will. I'm sure we will, in fact. Oh, wow. Anything Uh, else you want to say? I'm just, I'm looking through my highlights. Kelman talking to the Cybermen and uh, even Terrence Dick says, unaware that he was using one of science fiction's immortal cliches, Kelman said, (laughs) take me to your leader. 
and he even calls it a cliche. It's like, yeah. oh my god. And that does not appear on screen, by the way. So that's Dick's putting in some of his trademark improved humor. <laughs> yeah. The fact that and and they they kind of explain this the the Cybermen are aware of who the doctor is, but they don't recognize him because of his regeneration. I guess. In fact, oh god, do we really do we want to preview this one Trey because this is going to be an issue later. No. 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 Let's not get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's, there's, I'll just read the passage. This is a stranger I reported, the one who calls himself the doctor. The cyber leader reacted. There's a traditional enemy of our people known as the doctor. You think it's the same man? That's not possible. The doctor defeated us hundreds of earth years ago. Humans do not live so long. In addition, (laughs) his appearance does not match our records. Yeah. And then there's a funny bit about him searching his pockets and only finding jelly babies and half eaten apple and a yo-yo. Which actually does happen. <laughs> Remember that, won't you, Dalton? Because that is going to come up in about, oh, I'd say maybe three more years. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't recognize him this time, but there's a time in the future where they will recognize him even though he's regenerated. I'm, take, I'm taking uh, well, it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to give anything away as to how this happens, but there is a big whomping continuity plot hole error type thingy bop that happens later, specifically involving this story, mm-hmm. which I think could have been avoided given the fact that we're never told when the story takes place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. It doesn't say. It doesn't say in the script. It doesn't say in the book. It doesn't say anywhere when this takes place. It just takes place long before Ark in Space. So this very well could have taken place, you know, before that other story that supposedly it doesn't take place before. But I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, I feel like I remember reading, there was a mention that the, the bracelet takes them a, a thousand or so years before they were last on the Ark. But the Ark itself had been floating in space for, we said, like 10,000 years, right? Right. So there's, mm-hmm. there's inconsistency even there. Yeah, and I think that's what people have done with the story. They've kind of pushed the date forward simply because they say, oh, well, if Ark in space is in the far, far future and this is only 1,000 years before it, then it must be in the far, far future too. And it's like, no, that doesn't really follow. Uh-uh. No, no, especially when they're still using... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, where are all of the, the people on the Ark? Yeah. Yeah, but, well, they're all dead for one thing, but yes. Well, the people that were in the the, the capsules being, uh, you know, in... Oh, uh, It hasn't yeah. been used for that yet. No. But that's the point, too, with all these people dead. That's a lot of Cybermat remote control time. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got really good at it. think someone would have spotted it. Yes, he did. <laughs> Most people just go off into their rooms and, and play Animal Crossing on their Nintendo Switch. <laughs> He's controlling cyber mats with it. And if anyone comes in and says, hey, Calvin, you want to get a bike? No, I'm playing my Switch. Thanks. And he goes back to killing people with it. And nobody ever thinks to do what the doctor automatically does in the story, which goes straight into his room. Yeah. <laughs> and looks around and finds everything. It's like, oh, God, I hate this story with a passion. 
Oh, Lord. <laughs> I really do. La- last thing, because I think we've covered everything else I had highlighted. Th- the bit about the Armageddon Convention um, <laughs> and the Cybermen using the uh, Cobalt bombs and I guess the idea that species such as the Daleks and the Cybermen not attending the Armageddon Convention. <laughs> yes, and go figure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, I guess what they were trying to do was try to work in the Geneva Conventions into this whole thing, and yet, if you think about it, why would anything like the Geneva Conventions ever work in the Doctor Who universe? Mm-mm. It just wouldn't. I mean, we find out later that do they even work in our universe? Well, no, of course no. they don't. But we find out later in The Missing Adventure, I believe the, the Santarans are a signatory to the Armageddon Conventions, which is very odd. But, uh, yeah. God. So, Goodreads? Goodreads. I think so. Yes. I, 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 I'm calling it. Okay. <laughs> I don't I'm have calling any more it highlights. this party's dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.56, which strikes me as a bit high. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry about that, but do keep them coming. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it three stars and says Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. So says the Doctor in the TV version which I found odd, watching it on first broadcast. Between Robot and Genesis, Harry has been finding his feet, even though they're not in shoes. <laughs> That's my joke, not his. And earning the Doctor's respect, and now the Doctor's being insulting and dismissive. It's probably a result of the story being recorded before Genesis. All the clever byplay between the three main characters probably made sense in rehearsal. Thankfully, Terrence Dix fixes this in the book an early scene in which the Doctor glares at Harry, apparently blaming him unjustly for a door that the Doctor opened, nearly taking his arm off, is completely removed. In this version, it seems more like banter than abuse. The Cybermen are much improved on the page two. The very mechanical voices of the 60s and the modern era are gone, and the heavily distorted voices of the 80s are yet to come. Instead, though there's a little voice treatment, these Cybermen sound just like what they are, actors wearing masks, which spoils (laughs) the illusion somewhat. Other small problems, like the ticker tape being visible inside the TARDIS prop long before it's needed, are also fixed. But the book is essentially what you see on screen. The one thing that is better on screen is the setting. Seen only a month or so after Ark in Space, the serendipitous impact of seeing the same cost-cutting scenery of Nerva Beacon is lost in the book. I can take or leave the scenes on Voga, though. The location is visually impressive, but the sound quality is a little grating. Yeah, that's true. Daniel Kukwa gives it two stars and says Revenge is the neglected stepchild of Tom Baker's first season as the fourth Doctor, but it has a number of charms that raise it above its usual reputation. However, Terrence Dix is clearly not a fan, and this lack of enthusiasm results in a technically competent but very simple run-of-the-mill adaptation. And finally, a reviewer named Sarah gives it four stars, 
and says, I gave this four stars because it's a very fun read in its category. A fun adventure tale. I did note a glaring flaw when the bad guy had a filing cabinet full of paper in his office on the spaceship. No one foresaw paperless offices in the future? <laughs> Sarah, that was your issue with the story? That's the hill you're fighting and dying on? <laughs> uh, four, four stars, everybody. Yeah. So don't... <laughs> Out of five stars, what did you give this? Sarah sounds like me in some of my earlier readings. It was a good read. It was a fun read. <laughs> um, I'll go 2.5. I'll, I'll go right down the middle. I mean, nothing that Terrence Dix does is absolutely horrible. Nothing he does is absolutely amazing. A lot of my issue just comes from the, the questions raised by the story itself, and I don't I don't know that that is anything that uh, Terrence Dix necessarily could have fixed it's a pretty straightforward story with a lot of just weird holes that my brain immediately went what to but yeah so uh 2.5 for me okay trey again my measure is how well it serves as a novelization and i'd say i'd give it a standard three stars it's very similar to what don was saying it's neither greatest nor horrible but because it improves some of the more awful portions of the television story that makes it a little bit more than the middle for me so i'd say three stars okay and as for me i'd have to go with daniel kukla on this one and say two stars i was thinking of giving it lower in fact not because it's a bad representation of the story on screen it represents it as well as it can but it doesn't do much to actually make it better in any way. And I think I've gotten a little spoiled at reading Dix's novelizations of Pertwee stories. And I keep forgetting that he actually worked on those stories. So, of course, he's going to put a little more effort into them. This is also 1976 for him. And it's the year where he's writing, what, six of the damn things all in one year? So we're starting to see him cut corners a little bit. And unfortunately, where we previously would have gotten some background on a character like Kalman, I mean, we would have found out, you know, where on Craigslist he found that job listing from Vulpris. <laughs> he doesn't do it here, and he doesn't do it with any of the characters. He gives us just the tiniest little bit. And I think, Trey, you pointed this out, too. We don't know what the actual schism is between Voris and Tyrum. And we have to fill in those blanks. Novelizations are at their best when they do fill in those blanks. And what I think of as a good novelization has to represent the story, but it also has to be just a little more, at least. The really decent ones, of course, do better than that. But this one, yeah, it's a little subpar. So I'm going to give it the two. All right, well, thank you, guys. Hmm? And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss Terrence Dix's novelization of Terror of the Zygons, which has been sensibly renamed so as not to bury the lead, The Loch Ness Monster. Because it has the Loch Ness Monster in it. And <laughs> the, it wasn't that I was reminded of this. Allison's going to be back for that one. <laughs> yes. So, no, no relation. In the meantime, 
If you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.